from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. This week, we're talking about what happens when science changes conventional wisdom. Our first guest wants to change the way you envision Neanderthals. Our second guest wants you to rethink wildfires. The evolutionary anatomist and the geomorphologist. That's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Have you ever had one of those moments where you learn something new and you just think, wow, how could I have gotten this so wrong? Well, I had two of those moments this week. The first came when I read a report detailing the reconstruction of a Neanderthal skeleton. And the second came when I learned about the history of wildfires in the American West. In both cases, what I learned completely contradicted what I thought. Joining us from Tel Aviv is Allah Bean, who is the head of the first and only academic program in sports therapy in Israel. Her recent study in Nature Communications details a virtual reconstruction of a Neanderthal ribcage. She's an avid hiker and a salsa dancer. Allah, thank you so much for being with us today. It's really nice to be with you. Also joining us in studio is Brendan Murphy, whose research focuses on understanding the processes responsible for shaping the Earth's surface. That includes wildfire, and his latest article in the journal Earth's Future suggests that the unprecedented amount and extent of wildfires in the western United States might not be so unprecedented after all. He's cored bedrock in Hawaii, flown drones in Mexico, and hiked the southern Alps of New Zealand, all in the name of science. Brendan, thank you for joining us on Undisciplined. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. First up today, the evolutionary anatomist. Let's start with a little exercise. Wherever you are right now, I want you to imagine that you are a Neanderthal. And now move your head, move your shoulders, your your back, your whole body, so that you look a little bit more like a Neanderthal. Are you hunched over a bit, shoulders slumped, head leaning forward, arms dragging down by your side? Well, if you are, straighten up and listen to this. According to research led by our next guest, Neanderthals likely walked even more upright than modern humans. Allah Bean, let's start by talking about the genesis of this research. This all started with a sternum fossil from a 60,000-year-old male skeleton known as Kibara II. It was the most complete Neanderthal skeleton ever found, but the ribcage was collapsed. How did you go about digitally reconstructing it? Well, it took us a few years to do the reconstruction. The first thing we did was to CT scan the bones, the vertebrae and the ribs. Then we had to correct some uh, errors and some uh, missing parts. And we had to conduct some special methods in order to be able to reconstruct the ribs into the, into the uh, vertebra and to reconstruct the vertebra one on top of the other. And most of this effort was digital, right? You did this on computers. Yep. We scanned the vertebrae and the ribs, and then on the computer, on the 3D, uh, we aligned it together into one, one piece. And once it was reconstructed, what did you notice that was different between this rib cage and rib cages from modern humans? There are some very striking uh, differences. The first difference is that the lower thorax of the Neanderthal from Kibara is very big, very wide, much wider than ours, and it's also longer. The other thing that we found is that the spine is more inside the thorax than in one human. That means that if the spine is altogether more stable, 
then in Moisin. And the last thing that we saw only after we finished the reconstruction was that the ribs themselves were not aligned in the same positions as in modern humans. The ribs for Neanderthals are very horizontal compared to the ribs for humans that are inclined downwards. At least for me, the most striking thing that you found is that Neanderthals may have had an even more upright posture than humans. Is that right? Yep. Altogether, the spine is straight, much straighter than ours. So they were upright with a straight spine. They were strong. They had big muscles, but the, the thorax and the spine was very stable. Okay, but this goes against everything that I ever learned about Neanderthals, or at least that I thought that I ever learned. Every time I see these things on television or in photos, they're always hunched over, arms down, heads forward. How did we get that so wrong? I think that's the beauty of science. Little by little, every time we get another piece of knowledge and we change the way we see things and we add to what we we knew. Uh, The first people that studied the Neanderthals, they used the methods that they had at the time, and that's how they, they imagined Neanderthals. Later on, people thought that Neanderthals were not different from Homo sapiens, and they were just like Homo sapiens. In today's world, we have more advanced methods to explore those questions, and that's what we came up with, that they had a relatively straighter spine than ours. And did that surprise you as well? Well, I started studying the spine of Neanderthal almost 20 years ago. And from the very beginning, I saw that he was different to modern humans or to Homo sapiens altogether. I couldn't understand what the difference means. I, did, I just saw differences, but I didn't know why. Because I was looking at vertebrae, you know, just lumbar vertebrae. That's what I, that, what I had. And little by little, as long as I uh, got to know it better, I realized that it has to do with posture. Realizing how different the whole spine was to ours was, yes, was, it, I had to have, a, a, to have a shift in my mind to what I knew from, from other researchers to what I saw in the, in the spine. And you didn't just learn about posture. You also learned something about lung capacity, too. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, lung capacity has a lot to do with your ability to to change the amount of air that's coming in and out of your lungs. What we find with Neanderthals is that the overall size of the thorax is within the normal range of one human, but the lower thorax is bigger. If you have a big lower thorax, you exchange more air every time you breathe. You breathe in, you breathe out, you exchange more air. The other thing that we found is that because the lower thorax is so wide for Neanderthals, it means that they use the diaphragm for breathing more than we do because their muscle was bigger and probably stronger than ours. Now, this doesn't just help us picture what Neanderthals were like and how they stood and how they breathed. It helps us understand more about them. What do you feel like we understand now that maybe we didn't understand before, particularly around how they moved through their environment and interacted with their environment? I think what we understand is that their need of stability was stronger than ours. Their need of mobility was reduced compared to one human's which means that they were very stable. They, were, they, they had probably slightly better equilibrium than we do. Their balance was better than, than ours. On the other hand, they might have been slightly slower. 
the question is why, and we don't 100% know why. One explanation can be that Neanderthals are usually in areas where there are mountains or hills. Not always, but usually. So when you go up and down the mountain or up and down the hill, you want to maintain your balance. On the other hand, more humans or homo sapiens that lived in, in more open areas got more ability to move quickly. We are more mobile and we can uh, move better. This study came out in early October, and I'm curious about how you found that people reacted to the idea that the way we so often picture Neanderthals might not be correct. Well, like everything new, you know, some people say, wow, that's interesting and you really show nice evidence for, for that reconstruction and you're interested in studying it and looking at it. Other people say, okay, it's really hard for us to look at Neanderthals from a different perspective and to realize that it wasn't like what we thought about it and we have to study more and look more before we accept this new notion. That's Allah Bean, whose recent study in Nature Communications offers a reconstruction of the Neanderthal ribcage and a reconsideration of commonly held beliefs about these ancient human ancestors. Allah, can you stick around for a little while and chat with our next guest at the end of the show? Yep. Next up, the geomorphologist. This morning, a state of emergency as the holy fire invades neighborhoods. Hey! Backyards on fire! Fire violently swirling around stoplights, entire hillsides fully engulfed. Rows of houses just feet away as the wall of flames rips through, creating a hellscape seen for miles. That's a report from ABC's Will Carr in the summer of 2018 as wildfires swept through tens of thousands of acres in Southern California. And that was only one of many fires in the state in a year that saw record-breaking fire damage. When you hear reports like this, it's easy to conclude that the amount of wildfire in the United States is unprecedented. But writing for the journal Earth's Future, Brendan Murphy has argued that a longer-term view, both into the past and into the future, can significantly shift our perspective. Brendan, we do know that area burning by wildfire has increased rapidly over the past three decades, but that only takes us back to 1984. What do we see if we take a longer look? If we take a longer look... We see that wildfire was actually much higher in the early part of the 20th century, and then it rapidly declined. And that decline started as we started to settle this area. And then as we started to get more organized in the suppression of fire, we were suddenly able to very effectively suppress wildfire. And that suppression dropped wildfire from somewhere on the order of 3 million hectares per year around 1916 down to less than half a million then it stayed pretty low, pretty low and pretty consistently low for a couple decades. And then starting in about 1984, we start to see this rapid increase. And it's increased to about rates we've seen in the 19-teens. However, if you look back even further, we see that wildfire was much higher. So if we look back to the pre-settlement times, we see that wildfire was more on the order of 7 to 18 million hectares per year. Okay, let's put this into context here. Sure. That, That sounds like a lot. Can you put this into context in terms of like a state size or a region size? or? Yeah, that's a great question. So that 7 to 18 million hectares per year, if we're looking at the 11 western states, that would represent 4 to 12% of the area burning every single year. That's huge. It is huge. 
And today we have a fraction of a percent of that area burning, right? Yeah, we're we're at about 3 million hectares. So that would be somewhere just under about 2%. But I've always heard that wildfires are increasing, climate change is increasing wildfires. How did we get this so wrong? Well, that part of the message is absolutely right. And we don't want to dispel that. The recent increases we've seen since 1984 are absolutely due to warming and drying of our forests in the Western United States. We also, in some ecosystems, due to those decades of fire suppression that we had, we've actually built up fuels. And so now we don't just have more combustible fuels that are drier, but we also have more fuels in those landscapes. So when they do burn, they burn bigger and hotter. The reason there's these claims of record-breaking wildfire is that the record we've been looking at only goes back to 1984. We don't see those higher areas of the past. Now, to see those higher areas of the past, you had to dig into a lot of data. How do we know what the wildfire situation looked like before European settlement? So we're actually using proxies. And two of those main proxies are going to be wildfire scars in tree rings. The second way is through charcoal. And so you can imagine if a big fire happens and a lot of erosion makes its way into, say, a lake, that charcoal will actually get deposited in the bottom of the lake. You can core that sediment, and then you can actually use carbon-14 and date that. And the final way is you can actually use fire frequency. So we know in certain forests and certain ecosystems what the frequency that we would expect wildfire to occur. And so one of the methods is actually taking that, reconstructing it, and calculating the probability of area that would burn in any given year. And that's where we get that 7 to 18 million hectares per year. Now, when I read this at first, I thought, okay, well, we started fighting fires, and we got better and better at it, and that's what really slowed them down. And you've talked a little bit about that. But there was another factor that I didn't consider that was in your research, livestock. As we started to settle the, the western United States we also began to change the landscape. As soon as the railroads arrived, they brought livestock with them and people began to graze. And as they grazed, they actually removed a lot of that, those fine fuels. And so you're removing that potential for burning. We tend to focus on the damage that fire does to homes and other structures. And maybe to a lesser extent, how it impacts our recreation areas and our wildlife. But you make the case that we can't afford to ignore another really big risk. Can you explain why fire threatens water security? Wildfire causes erosion. Now, the amount of erosion that happens, the magnitude of that erosion, is a function of the fire severity. Catastrophic fire may produce catastrophic amounts of sediment. And some recent studies have come out that have shown that with these increases in wildfire that are predicted through the mid-21st century that we may see a doubling of the sediment that's going into rivers in over a third of Western watersheds. With the amount of damming that we've done in the West, that is all sediment that is going to end up in dams. And those reservoirs behind those dams are what we rely upon in large part for water supply. So if that sediment is filling up those dams at a rate that is higher than what we predict, we may actually start losing the capacity, the storage capacity of those reservoirs. We're already facing sort of a decrease in the water supply just as a source. You know, it's getting drier in the West. We could lose water security as we move forward. So wildfire is an inevitable part of our future. What do we need to do to ensure greater water security? We advocate for something that may be 
an uncomfortable idea, and that is allowing more fires to burn. If we want to see more low-severity fire that's producing um, healthier forests, that's producing less smoke, that's producing less erosion that's going to decrease our water storage capacity, we need to let more fires burn so that they're burning hopefully at, at these lower severities. And so they're going to have less of an impact. This doesn't mean we're advocating for, you know, when these fires are threatening downtown LA to let them burn. Let fires burn where they're not going to impact anybody. And therefore we can let the system sort of reset, get back to their normal state, and hopefully have less impact on people's homes, on people's air quality, and on people's water security. How receptive do you find people to this message? I think it's surprising. I mean, most people think that the answer would be throwing more resources at it, right? More helicopters, more planes, more money, more fire crews. You know, I think we're, we're generally surprising folks. Um, in the fire science community, I wouldn't say we are. I mean, the ideas that we're bringing sort of forward to the public conversation are not surprising to the fire science community, but they may be surprising to the public. And water security, when you talk water security, that gets people to sit up and listen. Getting people to start thinking about their water resources is hard. But we hope that showing people that allowing more fire is actually important for protecting water resources, that this will push people to allowing less restrictions on allowing fires to burn. That's Brendan Murphy, whose recent study in Earth's Future suggests that the American West has always been subject to massive wildfires and always will be. Brendan, there's someone I'd like you to meet. Can I introduce you? Absolutely. Well, in that case, Brendan, this is evolutionary anatomist and salsa dancer Allah Bean. And Allah, this is geomorphologist and hiker Brendan Murphy. Hi, it's great to meet you. Hello, Brendan. Both of you told me about studies that really counter the conventional wisdom about the things you study. When you release reports like these, what's the reaction like? I would say that, you know, in... As, these, as our paper is going around in, in our community, you know, most people are shaking their head. We're sort of taking something out of the echo chamber, compiling it in a way that we hope is more digestible and communicates better to the public and puts a new message on it. But the idea of, of wildfire being larger in the past isn't something that I would say is really shocking our, our scientific community. Now, the public, it is getting a lot of attention. From that perspective, we are getting a lot of, of surprise. Pushback, I say, you know, maybe coming soon, but we haven't, we haven't heard it yet. So for, for us, I think um, it depends where you're coming from. Some people really accept that you look at the Neanderthals, that they had a straight back and a very big thorax, and it, it looks reasonable to them within the whole anatomy or morphology of, of Neanderthals. Other people that are very used to the to the notion that the Neanderthals were hunched backs and looked a little bit like a gorilla, to them it might be a little harder. So, Ella, I, I had a question for you about your, your research. You have one Neanderthal skeleton, and I'm just wondering, you know, when you're comparing it to a modern human, one of the things we struggle with in our work is reconstructing fire and trying to yeah. put together a record of the past that's that's incomplete. And with you, you've got one Neanderthal. And I'm just curious, you know, how much variation could there be in, say, the modern skeleton that you show and also in yeah. the Neanderthal skeleton that you show? That's a, that's a great question. And that's one of the biggest problems uh, working with, uh, with uh, ancient uh, humans or in paleoanthropology. 
We have one skeleton that is relatively um, complete, but we have a lot of other uh, skeletons that we have either isolated ribs or isolated vertebrae. So we can verify some, some of the morphology that we see within individual Neanderthal, the Kibara to Neanderthal, we can verify it in other Neanderthals. For example, what we see in the ribs, the shape of the ribs is slightly different from ours. We didn't know why it's different. Now we know because we see that the thorax is very wide and it's long and the, and the spine is more invaginated. But the same morphology of the ribs, the same anatomy of the ribs that we see for Kibara, we see for other Neanderthals. What do you do to increase the amount of data you can gather? I mean, this is enough of a, of a struggle that there are actually databases. Uh, there are these fire databases where everyone who's got data from charcoal influx or fire scar tree rings has put them into a single database to try to help reconstruct these fires. But even then, we still struggle. So, you know, there are some studies that go back into trying to reconstruct fire over millennia, so maybe 2,000 years in the past. And we really can't turn those proxies into estimates of wildfire area. We can say something about the frequency of fire, but, you know, we still struggle with trying to actually put a burned area number on on times of the past. You were asking me before about the variation within more humans. Uh, there are so many of us now from different parts in the world. There is a very big variation in the moon human anatomy. And the surprising thing that we see with Neanderthals is that although there is such big variation within the moon human anatomy or, or morphology, Neanderthals are still different. In some respect of their morphology, they are different from any moon humans. There is no population in, in the world today that have the same rib shape as Neanderthals. That was what I was going to ask. I was going to say, you know, if you looked at sort of the probability distribution of modern human thoraxes and Neanderthal thoraxes, if you would see any potential overlap. There are a lot of similarities, but despite all the similarities, there are certain uh, uh, morphometric characteristics that are unique to Neanderthals, and you don't find it in one human. Brenda, I wanted to ask you, how did early or Native Americans, how did they deal with it? Do you have any idea? Yeah, so there's actually some anecdotal records that Native Americans actually used fire as a tool. This opens up some amount of debate in terms of how much of that area of the past was actually due to Native Americans using um, wildfire for, for hunting or for clearing landscapes. But mm -hmm. some of those studies that looked sort of to the, the millennial timescales, just to look at wildfire frequency show that despite these changes in human populations through that time, that there were climate forcings, temperature and, and moisture, that really were the sort of dominant control. So while the Native Americans were influencing wildfire, they weren't sort of the controlling mechanism for it. You know, there certainly were cases where they were the ones actually starting it. But um, there are a lot of records of the past where you know, people would be, or animals would be caught up in wildfires of the West. So they were both sort of the perpetuators of it and so sometimes the, the victims of wildfire. Mm -hmm. lot. do you happen to know how Neanderthals used fire and how they dealt with fire? Yeah, well, we know for sure that Neanderthals used fire. Um, almost in every uh, cave where we, we dig for Neanderthals, we find uh, horses and we find charcoal. So we know that they use the uh, fire very frequently. 
Brendan, how far back does the dendrochronology record take us? Can we go back as far as Neanderthals? Well, so you have a preservation issue. After you go back far enough, you start to have too few trees to, with a high level of certainty, say how much area was burning or what the frequency of burning was. And that's when you start to rely on charcoal records. Some of these records will go back a few thousand years. They're certainly not going to go back to the 60,000-year-old the Neanderthal skeleton here. But yeah, the, the, the real issue is that the trees are dying off. And, and also with fire, you have this sort of inherent preservation issue. You're, you're actually burning what you're hoping to, to use as your record. We've only got a few more minutes. Do either of you have any burning questions for one another? I would like to ask you, Brendan, do you know what is the influence of, of uh, fire on the uh, animals within the fire? Obviously, it, the first thing that it causes is, is the devastation, but what happens after that? Are you talking the animals, not the plants? Well, you can talk about both. The reason I ask is that the animals are, of course, relying on the plants. And so in some of these ecosystems that are adapted to low-severity fire, you know, I don't know exactly, but I would imagine that they are able to sort of get away from those fires, right? They're just sort of smoldering fires mm-hmm. moving along, um, not consuming the whole forest. Um, there's mm-hmm. certainly, you know, the, the cases of areas where they are adapted to these high-severity fire. And in some of those places... I'm sure that wildlife is caught up in these fast-moving, high-severity fire. But the reverse is that some of those landscapes, some of those forests are actually adapted to that wildfire. They need it. Unfortunately, we are now out of time. Brendan Murphy, thank you for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you very much. This is great. And Allah Bean, thank you. Thank you very much. you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.